And um, uh, the uh, idea of socialism goes back to Plato. 380 BC, he lived in Athens. And uh, he writes in passing of Atlantis, this highly structured civilization on an island, and it sinks in the ocean. And uh, now whether it existed or not, Plato thought that it did. Now, it could have been Santorini, which is a island in the Pacific, and uh, let's see, I, um, where uh, it was a volcano that exploded and all that's left is the little rim of it. But, so uh, we have, uh, uh, we skipped ahead on a bunch of slides. So uh, let's see here, oh, there's, there's the Santorini Island. So, uh, so Plato thought that it was the ideal structured society. And he considered a democracy an unstructured society. Uh, demos means people, krasi means rule, and in the city of Athens, the people rule, and the chief characteristic of a democracy is tolerance. Everybody tolerates each other, it's wonderful. And then they tolerate people that are a little bit off. Then they tolerate people that are a lot off. So finally they're tolerating crooks and crime and fraud and looting and it turns into lawlessness. And then everybody says, we want someone to come along and fix this mess. And that's when some governor comes along and he says, I can fix it, I just need some emergency powers. <laughs> and when the dust settles, you've transitioned to a dictatorship. And so uh, Plato says that uh, the state is like a bazaar where you can buy anything like a piece of embroidery, variety of human natures, and such is democracy, a lawless, pleasing sort of government full of variety and disorder. And, and the manner of life is that of Democrats. Now, he's describing a democracy. And um, he says, every man does what is right in his own eyes. And uh, the father gets accustomed to descend to the level of his son and fear him, and the son has no shame or fear of his parents, so they're tolerating disrespect in the home. The teacher fears and flatters his students. The students despise their masters, so they're tolerating disrespect in the classroom. And then the citizens vote to take money from the treasury and spread it around. Now the treasury's empty. Then they vote to take the money from the rich people. It says, um, the leaders deprive the rich of their estates and distribute them amongst the people. And uh, it says, then it, they're tolerating immorality. And Plato says, the young man passes into freedom and libertinism of useless and unnecessary pleasures. There is no conceivable folly or crime, not accepting incest or any other unnatural union. Mm, yes, that's what he's talking about. He's part of company with all shame. Matter of fact, um, anthropologist J.D. Unwin, Oxford, wrote a book in 1934 called Sex and Culture. He studied Athens and 80 civilizations over 5,000 years. And he found out that loosening of sexual restraints always leads to civilizational decline. And he lay, lays it out. He says a civilization first goes through a period of pain and poverty. War, famine, like the Jews were, Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And then they come out and they begin to work and they get productive and then protective. And then they get patriotic and the whole nation starts to grow and become expansionistic and then they finally achieve prosperity. And then they wanna enjoy the prosperity and they get a little lazy and they get promiscuous and indulgent and they end up getting into that promiscuity and they get weakened and conquered by the next rising civilization. Sort of like an athlete when he's young, he's focused, disciplined, watches his diet, he wants that championship. And then finally he gets it and he's the champ for a couple seasons. And then he starts eating some fatty foods and then he doesn't work out as much. And in his mind, he still thinks he's the champ. And then he, um, 
gets challenged into the ring by the next rising athlete, and he gets the tar knocked out of him. And so that's the dilemma, right? So civilizations, when they're young, they're disciplined and focused, and they rise, and they get prosperous, and they get indulgent. So um, uh, J.D. Unwin, he even called it a sexual marketplace. Now, he's not a Christian. 1934, he writes the book. He says, where women as a whole say nothing happens unless there's a commitment, the guys say, well, whatever it takes. <laughs> and they end up becoming productive to provide for their wife. And then the next thing they know, there's little kids. And the guy has this new experience of being protective. And when all the men of the country become productive and protective, rising water floats all boats. The whole nation becomes productive and protective and, and creation, creative and expansionistic and innovative and, and even militaristic, and they begin to expand. But when the women say there does not need to be a commitment, Water seeks its own level. A bunch of guys will say, hey, good time, and they'll get pleasure-focused. And when all the men of the country get pleasure-focused, they're not as industrious, they're not as hardworking, and they get selfish, and they get lazy, and there's fewer kids to fill the ranks of the military, and the nation gets weakened and conquered by the next rising civilization. And so um, the, uh, John Adams writes to Thomas Jefferson, have you ever found in history a single example of a nation thoroughly corrupted that was afterwards restored to virtue? And without virtue, there can be no political liberty. He says, um, anyway, so Harry S. Truman says, without a firm moral foundation, freedom degenerates quickly into selfishness and anarchy. So Plato says that once they reach this unstructured mess, this anarchy, the people, again, begin to say, can't someone come along and fix it? And that's when this governor comes along and he says, I, I'll do it. I just need emergency powers. And he says, last of all comes the tyrant. When he first appears above ground, he's a protector. He's full of smiles. And it says, if any uh, are suspected of resistance to his authority, he will have a good pretext for destroying them. And then he says, uh, Plato says a democracy is doomed to fail because it's based on the people having virtue. And if the, if the people uh, are given a choice between giving up their life or giving up their virtue, they'll always give up their virtue to save their life. And so he said, it's just a matter of time till this self-government experiment crashes. And um, uh, matter of fact, Plato said, now, now this, uh, Plato's experiment was different than ancient Israel. Ancient Israel had a big magnet in the sky and people were virtuous because they were accountable to God. <sighs> Athens didn't have that. And in Plato's time, uh, they had a bunch of fickle deities that nobody believed in anyway. And so, um, so Plato said, if anyone was born that truly had virtue, the world would crucify him. He writes this in 380 BC. He said, um, if a truly just man lived, let him die as he lived. I might add that the just man will be scourged, racked, bound, and will at last be crucified. <laughs> he wrote that in 380 years before Christ. Anyway, so he says, the best you can hope for is a nice tyrant. He called him a philosopher king. And uh, he's the head of gold, and his administrators and military are the arms and chest of silver. They make up the ruling class. And everyone else is the abdomen of iron and bronze. They are the ruled class. So socialism is a structured society of a ruling class and a ruled class. Now, the ruling class, they're above the law. They're politically connected. They're supported by the commoners. They can do things like, like getting their hair styled when nobody else can. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, the commoner class, the, the ruled class, Everyone is provided for, but no one owns any property. 
There are no families. The government decides who gets to have children. The government takes the children away from the families and uh, socializes them, which is a, a process of get, giving up their values and just learning how to serve the ruling class. And so Plato says this, that this structured society of this philosopher tyrant king, it says, when the true philosopher kings are born in a state, they will set in order their own city. They will take possession of the children who will be unaffected by the habits of their parents. These they will train in their own habits and laws. And these kids will be taught noble lies in school. And he says, we want one single grand lie which will be believed by everybody. Hmm. Well, that was Plato's uh, Atlantis, this highly structured civilization that is what all socialist experiments look back toward. Now that inspired somebody 2,000 years later named Sir Thomas More, and he wrote Utopia, Island of Utopia. It's modeled after the island of Atlantis. And so he writes this in 1516, and uh, it's a fictitious island. The word utopia means nowhere. <laughs> and it's written as a Greek dialogue, a conversation with a traveler. And the traveler's name is Hythlodeus, which means peddler of nonsense. <laughs> so we have the island of nowhere told to us by the peddler of nonsense. And um, it's a perfectly structured island on Utopia. There is a upper class rulers. There's lower class commoners. There's free health care. There's free identical clothing. There's everyone receives free welfare. There's free meals in monastic-style communal dining halls. Everyone lives in free, identical three-story houses. There's no locks on any doors. There's no private property. And all property is and goods are stored in a communal warehouse. Again, this is uh, Island of Utopia, written in 1516 by Sir Thomas More. There are no taverns, no alehouses, no coffee houses, no places for private gatherings. There is no privacy that everyone is tracked everywhere you go with a vaccine passport. Or, <laughs> I mean, uh, an, an, an internal passport. Uh, <laughs> the government decides everyone's careers, and you have to work it your whole life, and there are no families in Utopia. That the government decides, again, who gets to have children. And so childbearing is regulated by the government. And they, uh, very similar to China and their one-child policy, or uh, Margaret Sanger's Planned Parenthood, where uh, they said that every um, child, uh, every woman shall have, a, have to get a license to bear a child. And um, now my, my uh, clicker is pausing, so I, they have a little antenna there in the back. Maybe someone in the, in the back can manually advance the slides for me because um, we're hitting a pause on my modern technology. So that, well... If you can um, advance it to the next slide. There we go. Okay. And you can go another one. Uh, so we have Island of U Atlantis, Island of Utopia, and now we have the New Atlantis written by Francis Bacon. And so this, he specifically is referring to Atlantis, and he's calling his the New Atlantis. It's a fictitious island in the South Pacific. A little more scientific careers, uh, but everybody's fate is determined by the government. Next. Uh, someone wrote a satire on this, Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. Remember, Gulliver is washed up on an island, and he finds out it's a highly structured society on this island with a ruling class that rules all the minutiae, and then everybody else just has to work their jobs the whole life, right? Why is this important? Uh, the next is the pilgrims. Uh, 
Did you know the Pilgrims were originally a company colony? with bylaws written by investors that put up the money for their boat ride, and the bylaws were modeled after Plato, Sir Thomas More, Sir Francis Bacon. Uh, this was, everything was owned in common. So next, the, um, uh, you can go to the next slide. So this is a quote from the Pilgrim's bylaws. Oh, go back one. It says um, that, uh, all profits, benefits that are got by trade, traffic, trucking, working, fishing, or any other means shall remain in ye common stock. Next. And all are to have their meat, drink, and apparel out of ye common stock. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, so you're getting the picture here. So here are the pilgrims. It's a company colony. Everything that they work for goes into the common stock, and everybody gets their livelihood out of the common stock. Next. Um, you have, uh, they tried it, and they almost starved to death. So what happened with this Pilgrim experiment? Um, William Bradford says that uh, the failure of that experiment of communal service, which was tried for several years by good and honest men, proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato and other ancients applauded by some of latter times. I don't know about you, but I think this is fascinating. Here is the Pilgrim governor writing about their colony and he knows that they are trying to live out Plato. He says, this proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato. So we got all this theoretical stuff. So all this, oh, everything owned in common. It sounds good with a bunch of guys sitting around a table. But when the pilgrims actually try to live this thing out, what happened? He says that the taking away of private property and possession of it in a community would somehow make a state happy and flourishing as if they were wiser than God. He says, for in this instance, community of property was found to breed much confusion and discontent and retard much employment, which would have been to the general benefit. For the young men, who were most able and fit for service, objected to being forced to spend their time and strength in working for other men's wives and children without recompense. The strong man or the resourceful man had no more share of food, clothes, etc., than the weak man, who was not able to do a quarter what the other could. This was thought injustice. The aged and graver men, who were ranked and equalized in labor, food, clothes, etc., with the humbler and younger ones, thought it some indignity and disrespect. As for men's wives, who were obliged to do service for other men, such as cooking, washing their clothes, etc., they considered it a kind of slavery, and many husbands would not brook it or allow it. Bradford goes on, let none argue that this is due to human failing rather than to this communistic plan of life in itself. I answer that God in his wisdom saw that another plan of life was fitter for them. So they began to consider, yes, <laughs> how to raise more corn and obtain a better crop so they might not continue to endure the misery of want. After much debate, the governor, with the chief among them, allowed each man to plant corn for his own household. Wow, what a novel idea. <laughs> like you plant corn for your household. He said, so every family was assigned a parcel of land. This was very successful. It made all hands very industrious so that more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means gave far better satisfaction he said the women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to plant corn, while before they would allege weakness and inability and to have compelled them would have been thought great oppression. So socialism always sounds good in theory, 
But when you actually try to live it out, it doesn't work. So they scrapped it and they gave everybody their own plot of land. Now, what if older fish could tell younger fish to stay away from shiny things dangling in the water? But they can't. So every new generation of younger fish are attracted to this shiny thing only to realize it's a hook. Socialism is a shiny thing dangling in the water. Free food, free healthcare, free education, free, free, free. Free is attractive, but there's a hook in there, right? So now, now didn't the early church own everything in common? Well, two very important differences, voluntary versus involuntary and church versus government. So the early believers voluntarily sold their land and they laid the money at the feet of who? The apostles for the church to distribute. They were not forced to sell their land and lay the money at the feet of Pilate for the Roman government to redistribute. Now, whenever in the Bible, God gives private property. They went into the promised land. Every family was permanently assigned a plot of land. If you own land, you can accumulate stuff. Uh, that's called being blessed. <laughs> and if you have a bunch of stuff, you can be moved upon in your heart to give away some of that. That is called charity. Right? And, um, but Lenin said socialism is a transition phase to communism, and Marx said communism can be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. So how can you be charitable if you don't own anything to give away. What are you going to do, steal from somebody else and now you're a thief, right? No, God entrusts you so the material possessions are just a way for you to manifest the spiritual heart that you have, right? I mean, God could have done everything all by himself, but he lets us participate in it voluntarily. Now, there's a confusion as to the role of government. In the Bible, God gives commands clearly to five groups. Individuals, families, business, church, and government. There are commands for individuals to take care of the poor. Uh, the family commands are mostly uh, husbands love your wives, children submit to your parents. There are commands that says, you know, take care of your family member or you're worse than an infidel, so you want to take care of them, but it's more just your family. Business, those commands are do an honest day's work and don't hold back wages. There are some commands of leave the gleanings of your field for the poor people to pick through. Church, there definitely are commands for the church to take care of the poor. And immediately the church was having orphanages being fed and widows being fed and they, were, they started hospitals and medical clinics and all kinds of schools and the church was involved in all of that. Did you know there's no command for the government to take care of the poor in the Bible? The command to the government is the shortest. Protect the innocent, punish the guilty. There's no command for the government to be involved in education. There's no command for the government to be involved in healthcare. What's happened is the government has usurped the church's role. And so in a sense, socialism is counterfeit church with the difference of voluntary versus involuntary. And um, so here's a quote from James Madison. Charity is no part of the legislative duty of government. Here's a quote from Davy Crockett, congressman who died in the Alamo. He said, Congress has not power to appropriate this money as an act of charity. Every member on this floor knows it. There was some uh, lady who uh, had her house burned in Washington, D.C., and the, and the congressmen were going to vote to have the federal money go to her. And he goes, um, 
we have the right as individuals to give away as much of our own money as we please in charity. But as members of Congress, we have no right to appropriate a dollar of public money as charity. So this was the understanding in America. And Calvin Coolidge says, it does not follow that because something ought to be done, the national government ought to do it. Well, we need to, we need to take care of the poor. Yes, we do, but it's not the government's job. We need to do this, we need to do that. Yes, we do, we need to do all those things, but it's not the government's job. Individuals, churches, right? Uh, here's a quote from Gerald Ford. People say, why don't you expand that program and spend more federal, federal money? I look them in the eye and say, do you realize that a government big enough to give us everything we want is a government big enough to take from us everything we have? Right, so that's the dilemma. Now, when the church helps people, it wants the people to become better off. Why? So they can help the next needy person that comes along. When the government helps people, uh, it does it in, in exchange for something, right? So you're in Egypt, you're starving, you need a bag of grain. The government says, we'll give you the grain, but it's in exchange for your land, your cattle, your children, your lives, your votes, right? Um, the church helps people, and when the givers give, you, the giver, get to experience God working through you, meeting the need of a person. And if you've done that, you feel the joy of the Lord working through you. Uh, the recipient experiences the love of God through a real person. Um, now, when the government helps people, it's, it's impersonal. And the recipient be becomes ungrateful and views, starts to view the, the gift as a debt that is owed to them. And if it gets interrupted, you, they get upset that this gift is now stopping. And another dynamic, over time, the recipient loses some self-esteem. And uh, they begin to channel that negative feeling toward the entity that is making them feel bad. The very government, they end up hating the very government that's giving them free stuff. It's a strange dynamic. And uh, now the pilgrims, so they switch from company to covenant. They switch from involuntary to voluntary. And so, yes, they're gonna take care of their neighbor, but it's not in the bylaws that it's gonna be taken away, stored in a communal warehouse, and somebody divvies it out. No, we're taking care of it voluntarily. Why? Because we're doing it as unto the Lord. Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. And um, so, uh, if we look at power uh, of government, there is a, a line, and it goes from total government on one side, no government to the other. Total government power keeps wanting to concentrate more and more like a black hole, like in, you know, in, the, in the galaxy. And, but the no government side is anarchy. No government unless the people are taught morals. And so the ancient, uh, you know, the, the um, Israelites were a model for the colonial New England pastors and the pilgrims. And uh, so they came up with this covenant form of government. It's people in agreement with each other, committed to caring for each other. Why? Because you're doing as, as unto God and you get your rights from God. And uh, so, but I was trying to find a way of explaining this. So we take the power of, of government and we separate it. It would be anarchy unless each person was taught the law. And uh, the way of thinking of this is everybody downloads a behavioral app on their iPhone, right? Instead of a GPS app telling you where to turn, imagine if you had an app on your phone that tells you how to act in real time. I uh, can sense your blood pressure going up. You're about to lose your temper, that person. Hold on, don't, uh, don't steal that off that table. I, I see you, right? Imagine a behavioral. And, and the Levites, the, the Jewish priests, were the computer geeks that help you to download the app. 
Now, how do I download this behavior? Well, go to line upon line, precept upon precept. So everybody in Israel downloaded the law. They had it memorized. They had it in their heart. They didn't need uh, you know, the policeman to follow them around because they had it. But the big question is, why would you follow it? What would motivate you to follow an internal moral? Israel had the key ingredient. There is a God who is watching everyone. He wants you to be fair, and he's going to hold you accountable in the future. So you're about to steal, nobody's around, you know you can get away with it, and then you think, God is watching me. He, he wants me to be fair. He's gonna hold me accountable in the future. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. And so it creates something in your head called a conscience. If instead of worrying about social credit scores and cameras watching you and you gotta comply to the government, no, forget that, it was God watching. And so everybody was obeying the law because God was watching, he wants you to be fair, he's gonna hold you accountable in the future. Now, God knew that the Israelites would break the law, and rather than them walking around for the rest of their life with a guilty conscience, once a year, they would have the Day of Atonement where they would have a sacrifice and everyone's sins in the nation would be washed away for the previous year and they could start off the new year with a clean slate. And obviously, this is foreshadowing Jesus, that Jesus is our atonement, and it's not just for a year, it's for our whole life. Right, that he paid for all the sins for our whole life. And uh, uh, now, how am I doing time-wise? I, I see the, the clock, and then I see the, the negative number. Am I overtime? <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I, I've got lots of stuff, so I, I need to g- give me a 10-minute warning. So, all right, at least give me a, give me a little warning here. So we got, we, if, we, if we get rid of God, we teach the kids in school there's no God, there's no right, then what are laws if there's no God? They're just a bunch of things that some old men made up. Why follow them? Well, some will out of habit as long as everybody else is doing it, but some are gonna say, forget this, and they're gonna yield to their selfish side. And they're gonna start robbing and stealing and killing, and it's gonna turn into lawlessness. And so what happened with ancient Israel? Right, so everybody in ancient Israel was taught the law. And it worked for 400 years. For 400 years, Israel did not have a king. They kept law and order because everyone was taught the law and and followed it because they're accountable to God. But then the priests stopped teaching the law. They did? Yeah, here's Eli, the high priest. His own sons are sleeping with women in the very tent where the Ark of the Covenant was. I mean, imagine that. And then um, you had another uh, story in the book of Judges where there is a uh, priest with a silver graven image in the house of a guy named Micah. And, uh, and then you're reading the story, scratching your head, thinking, what's this priest doing with a silver graven image? He's not following the law. And then you read the story of a Levite with a concubine, and the law says the Levite's to marry a virgin of his own tribe. Here he is with a woman he's not even married to, so he's not following the law. The story gets worse and worse, and they're traveling in there in a house surrounded by sodomites who bang on the door and rape the poor girl to death. By the time you're grossed out, you read this line, every man did that which was right in their own eyes. Why? Because the priest had stopped teaching them what was right in the Lord's eyes. So they lost the fear of God, they forgot the law, turns into all they had left with the selfish human nature, turns into chaos, and then they want some governor to come along and fix it. And King Saul comes along and says, I can fix it, I just need to take away all your rights and freedoms. And Saul ruled as a tyrant. And, um, you know, he, the one story was that the priest came and uh, gave David some bread and the sword of Goliath, and Saul, Saul wanted to kill them all. And, um, but, 
So that's just a little nutshell. That's like one one hundredth of what's in the book. But it's this idea that uh, socialism is a cultural bait and switch. It's a, it's a promised dream, but it ends up being a nightmare. Promises heaven, delivers hell. It, why, what's the difference? Voluntary versus involuntary. And, uh, and then church versus government. And um, now, with uh, the voluntary versus involuntary, th- that's sort of a big deal with God. Uh, you think if here's God, he exists for eternity. Eternity upon eternity upon eternity upon eternity upon eternity. He has existed. And he makes everything. You know, I was, um, great YouTube video on the Hubble telescope. And they launched it in the 1990s. In 2003, it's this telescope that circles the Earth so it's above the atmosphere so it gets really clear. In 2003, they focused this Hubble telescope on a little spot in the sky where there was nothing. The spot was so small. If you were to take a grain of sand, hold it between your fingers at arm's length against the night sky, that's how teeny of a spot that they focused this Hubble telescope on for two weeks. They developed the images, and they found out in that little spot was 10,000 galaxies with a trillion stars in each galaxy and untold numbers of planets, and they called it the Hubble Deep Space Field. And then they focused the Hubble telescope at other places where there was nothing, and they began to pick up. And all of a sudden, they realized this universe is immensely bigger than anybody had ever thought before. And God made it all. Face it, he is all-powerful. He's existed for eternity. He's all-powerful. He knows everything. It's not that he knows everything. It is impossible for him not to know everything. And it's almost like after gazillions of eons, he says, you know, been there, done that. I can make things that obey me. I am all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal. I can make galaxies. What's a galaxy anyway? It's a bunch of rocks. Big rocks, enormous rocks, hot rocks. You know the biggest star they found is Stevenson-2-18. It is so big, it's a super gas giant. If they were to put the Stevenson-2-18 in our solar system, it would engulf the orbit of Saturn the sixth planet from the sun. We're the third planet from the sun. The one star would be that big. I mean, God is all powerful. But again, he's existed for eternity, makes everything, and, and at some point in eternity past, he's by, he, he said, you know, I, I would really like someone in my image that could love me. Everything obeys him, but... Love, by definition, must be voluntary. So he came up with the idea of you and me. And he created our reality, our world, and he hides himself behind creation. Because if he ever revealed himself, he is so massively awesome that every atom in your body will fall flat before him. And he wouldn't know if you're worshiping him just because he is so totally awesome or if you've decided to love him. I tell people, imagine if a billionaire had a son goes to college, he drives up in his Maserati, he's got gold rings on, got fancy clothes, fancy hair, he is decked out, he's gonna have every girl on campus wanting to meet him. But if he lays all that aside and drives up in an old clunker with holes in his blue jeans, all the uppity girls are gonna ignore him 
And then there's some girl that likes to study with them in the library. They get to become friends. They have an ice cream cone together. They fall in love. They get engaged. And then he says, hey, I want to take you back to meet my dad. <laughs> and they're like driving up to this mansion. And this girl's like, whoa, you didn't tell me about this. He knows that she loves him for him, not because of all of his stuff. And see, the, the dilemma is if God were to influence us and force us to love him, he himself would know he's forcing us to love him, and he would know that our response is not a love response. So he created this world so that we would have the free will to choose him or not. And, and I get sort of theoretical, but you know, here you have the little electrons, and they're like gravitationally pulled toward the, the proton and the neutron, or the nucleus. And then you have uh, these little atoms are sort of gravitationally pulled, you know, to, to get together. And, and, and then you have the, the molecules pulling together. They form organisms. And then the, the gravity pulls the moon to the earth, everything. And so in other words, God, I mean, no, you can read it. Nobody even knows what gravity is. I mean, you, they, you can, they know how it works. But it's almost like the Holy Spirit has a gravitational pull. He won't force you, but he'll have a gentle pull. And if you yield yourself and you're drawn to him. But you can also harden your heart and say, mm, you know, but we yield to him. And his grace gives us the power to respond. And um, anyway, so God knows that if he gives us the free will, what if we blow it and we sin? See, this is the dilemma. Uh, God is a just God, and he cannot help it. What does just God mean? That means he has to judge every sin. And um, so the um, uh, idea is, uh, is <laughs> hope the floor doesn't open up here. <laughs> All right, so, so real quick, have you ever sinned against anybody? You sort of don't want to be around the person you've sinned against, right? Let, let's say you're lying about somebody and you're joking about them and you look up and there's that very person, they're walking toward you question are you drawn to want to go over to that person no your own conscience like oh there's there's that person i was just lying about him your own conscience wants you to get away so it's like two magnets that are stuck together and one of them turns the first one wants to touch but the second one wants to get away so it's not so much that god sends people to hell it's once people sin against god it's their own consciences that want to make them avoid god so Adam and Eve said, we blew it. We have to do something to make ourselves acceptable to God. They put on fig leaves. That was the beginning of false religions. Man coming up with man's idea how to make man acceptable to God. Did the fig leaves work? No. And then you re read this little line, God made Adam and Eve coats of skins. If you think of it, how do you make a coat of skin? Something has to die. You think God went to the other side of the garden, killed an animal, and brought Adam and Eve some nice tailored outfits? Or do you think maybe he killed the animal right in front of them, and they witnessed the first death ever? And they're watching this innocent, because creation just happened, this is the first thing ever to die, right? And they're watching this innocent animal go through the pangs of dying, and they're thinking to themselves, we're the ones that sinned, but, but this innocent animal is the one that's dying. And God wanted to make it really clear the animal was dying in their place, that right in front of them, he strips the skin off the animal and he puts it on their naked bodies. Maybe it still had a little blood on it. They were covered in the blood. 
And so for the rest of their lives, they're walking around wearing the skin of that animal that they watched die in their place. And whenever God sees Adam and Eve, he sees them clothed with the skin of the animal, the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. So Adam and Eve tell Cain and Abel. Cain decides he wants to worship God, but, but he does an offshoot of the church of the fig leaf, and he starts the church of the fruits and the nuts. <laughs> Cain's is a religion of works. He's trying to work his way to heaven. We know it's works because God told Adam, the ground is cursed for your sake, and you'll bring forth fruit by the sweat of your brow. So here's Cain, sweat, he's planting and hoeing. He gets all of his works, he piles his work on, his, on the altar. Did Cain's works make him acceptable to God? No, Abel did the lamb thing. And it's this picture, God is on one side, we're on the other side, our sins separate us from God, our polarity, our magnets turn the wrong way, but the lamb pays for the sin. So Abraham offered lambs. Moses had every family in Israel kill a lamb, put the blood over the doorpost of their house so the angel of death would pass over. The high priest brought the blood of the lamb into the holy holies and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. The blood actually changed it from a judgment seat into a mercy seat. Finally, John the Baptist points at Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. So God is on one side, we are on the other side, our sins separate us from God, the Lamb pays for the sin. So I ask people, are you approaching God as Cain or as Abel? If you are still hoping you're good enough to go to heaven, you are approaching God as Cain. I hope I piled enough works on the altar, maybe a couple more handfuls of barley, that'll do it. Or are you approaching God as Abel? It's not me, it's his lamb that paid for all of my sins. Now why did the lamb have to die? God is a just God, he cannot help it, it is his nature, and he cannot change his nature. He is a just God. Now what does that mean, he's a just God? That means he has to judge every sin. If he lets a sin slide, he's effectively giving consent to the sin. Remember the wedding ceremonies and a pastor would say, anybody against this wedding, speak now or forever hold your peace. If you're sitting there watching the wedding and you're silent, your silence is giving consent to the wedding. So if God is silent when sins are happening, his silence is giving consent to sin. And if God gives consent to sin, he is no longer a just God. He denies his just nature, he denies himself. To ask God to overlook a sin is you are asking him to deny himself. And he cannot deny himself, he must judge every sin, but he is a loving God in that he provided the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. So Abraham and Isaac are going to the top of Mount Moriah and Isaac says, Father, we have the wood for the sacrifice, we have the coals for the sacrifice, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says, Son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. It can be read two ways. God will have a ram up in a bush up there, or God will provide himself as the sacrifice. And that's what happened. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God, became the lamb, became the sacrifice. So God is just and then he judges every sin, but God is love and that he provided the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. And if you think of it, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Jesus experienced that day on the cross as if it was a thousand years. And it's in a divine scale, 
an eternal being, Jesus, an eternal being who's innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, finite means a limited, right, the, the day on the cross, and an eternal being who's innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, is equal to all the finite beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. So I'll say it real quick. An eternal being who's innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, is equal to all of us finite beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Jesus literally suffered the equivalent of eternal damnation in all of our places. That's why he was sweating drops of blood. He paid the price. That's why we approach God through Jesus. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And as long as you think your relationship with God is based on you being good enough, you will always have this nagging thought in the back of your head, did I do enough? And your own conscience will tell you, no, you did not do enough, you can never do enough, and you'll always be hesitating. The moment you put all your faith in Jesus that he truly paid for all of it, all of it, yes, all of it, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed you from your transgressions, he's thrown all your sins in the depths of the sea. The moment you believe that, your magnet flips around and you're instantly in the presence of the Lord. And then his magnetism overpowers you and you're reaching out to the lost and dying world, but it's his spirit doing it through you, right? His yoke is easy, my burden's light.